Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I am great, David. Thank you very much. It's great to see you. Good to see you. So we learned in the news last week that there was a secret White House meeting, a secret clandestine White House meeting where President Biden met with, and here's the anticlimactic bit, a bunch of historians to talk about history. Uh, but but we thought this was an interesting opportunity to talk about about the ways in which historians engage with with the president in particular, but, but with politics more generally, uh, and to talk about this this particular meeting, which seems to be a, a interesting group of historians that that Biden had uh, at his uh, at his at his table to discuss both history and presumably uh, policy as well. So the meeting took place on March second, David. Um, yes. And it was organized by um, the journalist and, and writer and I guess historian John Meacham, um, who who will be you know is a well known media presence in the U.S. and has been described as Biden's muse because he wrote uh, he he helped to write uh, Biden's I think his his inaugural address and his acceptance speech is that correct? But there's a, I think there's a few speeches that that Meacham had a hand in, um, but you know he's known as. A, journalist. He was, you know, mostly as a magazine journalist initially, but he's been a historian um, as, uh, I guess, a career track B, although he seems like he's he's a very busy guy. Uh, he's written about, about your man, Jefferson. He's written about Andrew Jackson, uh, written a number of, of, of volumes of history. So uh, he's a historian as well. He wrote about journalist. Roosevelt and Churchill. He's written about Roosevelt, which is probably particularly germane in this, in this uh, context, I think. Yeah, and so, so, so got together. Yeah. yeah, who was at the meeting? Can we talk about the people the, in the room. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So he got. Who, who, sorry, David, 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 David. Who was in the room where it happened? Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, well, clearly neither of us were there because uh, you know, which you know, uh, I'm sure that we were next on the list if somebody uh, said no. <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, also there, uh, Michael Eric Dyson was there. Uh, a uh, Glaude from uh, Princeton was there. Walter Isaacson was there. Doris Kearns Goodwin was there. Uh, and then, especially relevant to us, uh, maybe uh, Annette Gordon-Reed and Joanne Friedman, both of whom um, are, are past and future Fennel lecturers, uh, so people we have uh, some connection with. Uh, so, so a pretty uh, uh, impressive bunch of people. What do, you, what do you think about the people that 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 Meacham got to speak to Biden? It was a very impressive group of people, and I think it was a group of people who, in the main, and this is, doesn't surprise me, given John Meacham's profile. I mean, John Meacham is not just a writer and a journalist; he's also a kind of prominent media figure. Mm. And most of these individuals are people who are not only recognized uh, as as historians, as scholarly mm. historians, or in some cases, public intellectuals, but they're also people with significant media presences themselves. So these are people um, who I suspect John Meacham's encountered in, in his in his work as both a, uh, as a writer, but also as a, as, a, as a public figure himself and as a media figure. Uh, but I also think these are people who would be known to Joe Biden and Joe Biden's staff Hmm. Um, you know, the, one has to assume that the kind of White House staffers who might have organized this event 
probably don't kind of read the footnotes and listservs the way we do. And so these are people who would be immediately recognizable to the people around Biden and to Biden himself. And who Biden was a history major, of course. Uh, and, and, and so I think that their, their public prominence as well as their public prominence, which derives from their expertise, uh, would have been a factor in, in their selection, I'm guessing. Yeah. I, I, I what, do you, struck, what do you think? You know, I was struck by, by the, the, you know, the, the diversity of different kind, no, the diversity of, of who's on the panel. I think that was in, is interesting. Uh, you know, we have people who are academics sort of bought uh, by nature people, you know, like uh, uh, Joanne Freeman, you know, comes through the academic uh, world, you know, in a very organic way. Some of the uh, other ones are are less so, like, like Walter I, I, Isaacson, you know, who's a, a biographer, primarily by by training, uh, and a journalist. Uh, you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin, who is by training, I guess, a journalist, uh, but has, has obviously been a historian for for much of the past uh, thirty years. Um, so a diversity of different kinds of approaches to history, approaches uh, a diversity of, of time periods in terms of their expertise. So we've got everybody from early Americanists to people who do, do 20th century stuff. Uh, and so the, there really is an interesting sort of breadth of, of experience there. Um, it's not just a bunch of old white guys, which I think is interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a diverse group, not only in their in their back in in sort of their their uh, professional backgrounds, but it's mm. a diverse group in terms of their their personal quali qualities and characteristics yeah. and backgrounds. Um, you know, and we don't know too much about what happened in this meeting. All it sounds like the meeting lasted for more than something like two to three hours. Biden, from the accounts that we have of the meeting, it sounds like Biden was asking lots of good questions and seemed to have been uh, on the ball with with trying to sort of follow what these these historians are saying. Um, we know they talked about FDR, LBJ, and Lincoln. I guess that's not surprising that a president would ask about sort of historical antecedents. Uh, at some, we know at some point they talked about the Jay Treaty because that came up in media reports. I'm assuming that 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 uh, Joanne Freeman and Annette Gordon-Reed were the ones that brought up the Jay Treaty. That probably wasn't uh, an element that that Biden brought up on his own, um, but you never know. Well, it's a little known fact, David, that he wrote his senior thesis at Delaware on the Jay Treaty. So it was like <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, sure he did, Frank. I'm sure that was, he's like, you know, 40 years ago, I wrote this thing about the Jay Treaty. I was very curious about um no, I don't think that's what happened. Who knows? Um, what do you think they just talked about? What do you think were the... Well, the, the <coughs> excuse me. I mean, I why think he would have this meeting in the first place. I think it's... Uh, well, I think it's very interesting. I think it's an interesting um, decision by President Biden uh, to have done this. I think a couple of things. First of all, the media reports... Um, which stressed the fact that it was a lengthy meeting uh, that lasted nearly three hours, suggests this wasn't just a sort of uh, vanity affair, you know, trying to look smart by being around smart people, have a photo op and, you know, give them a pen and send them on their way. They, they, there does seem to have been a substantive conversation. I think that's interesting. I think President Biden, uh, I think it reflects his awareness that we in the, or the United States is at a turning point, a particular turning point. Uh, it's a momentous um, 
and challenging time. And I think the, the fact that the presidents who were discussed that we know of, on one hand, okay, Lincoln, FDR, and LBJ seem obvious. Well, Lincoln and FDR, because they, of course, uh, took office at moments of extreme peril and crisis for the country, and one can argue the United States is in a, in a similar moment of, of crisis now, so, so that seems obvious. But FDR and LBJ are interesting to me because they are both associated. I mean, on one hand, they're, they're kind of um, in the pantheon of great Democratic presidents or, or certainly significant, uh, important Democratic presidents. LBJ's legacy is complicated, as we know. But the, the fact that, that Biden seemingly was wanted to know about F, FDR and LBJ, who, at least in their domestic policies, were transformative presidents or certainly aspired to be transformative presidents, might be an indication of his own ambition mm. and, and, and um, uh, aspirations as president. And I, I think that's quite telling. That, so so that, that, that's we don't know exactly what happened. I'll be very interested to talk to yeah. Joanne Freeman and, and uh, Annette Gordon read off the record someday about what, what, what that meeting was like. But uh, um, but so we don't but based on the media reports, that, that that's my initial response. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're definitely right. The, one of the the questions that Biden is wrestling with, and I think the the bringing in historians be relevant to is, you know, how do you pass a, a an ambitious legislative agenda? What's the, the right speed for doing it how do you build consensus both in, in the country and in, in congress for whether it's sort of a new version of the new deal or new version of the great society um i can imagine that dominated much much of the the conversation i mean the thing that strikes me about this means that obama had a very similar meeting early in his presidency um Obama had a meeting on the uh, June 30th, 2009, um, and he had actually had some of the same people. I, mean, I don't know whether it's in the same room, but at least some of the same people uh, at his uh, dinner with historians. So they had Michael Beschloss, who was also at the Biden meeting. He had Doris Kearns Goodwin, who was also at the uh, Biden meeting, but he also had Gary Wills, H.W. Brands, Douglas Brinkley, Robert Caro, Robert Dalek, uh, and David Kennedy. Uh, which is actually is a much less diverse group of people, uh, a substantially less diverse group of people than, than who Biden spoke to. And the a couple of the interesting things about the Obama meeting, one is he asked all of them, okay, so what what do you, should I be worried about? What do you want to warn me about? And basically, almost everyone in the room warned him that uh, continuing the war in Afghanistan would make that like Vietnam was for LBJ and, and you know, to, to take proactive, uh, make a proactive decision to pull out of Afghanistan. And to the extent that Obama listened to the historians there or didn't, seems for the most part that he didn't. Um, and the second part of the, the, the meeting in 2009 that I think is, is interesting is Obama at the end of it said, guys, that was great. I'm hoping we can do this multiple times over the course of my presidency, this is really valuable to me, and he never did it again. Um, which may mean that Obama was busy, or it may mean that it you know, wasn't as valuable as, as at least he initially supposed that it was. Um, 
I mean, I think it's it's interesting that both Biden and Obama are having these meetings at the beginning of their presidency when they are sort of thinking, how do I fit into this office? How does my term as president fit into the um, you know pantheon of people who have held that particular office? Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, you know, when we talked about the American Recovery Plan a couple of weeks ago, one of the, the points that came up in our conversation was that uh, Biden seems to both to have learned from his experience as Obama's vice president. And mm. this is both and this has meant that he's kind of followed some of that behavior, but also deviated from it in certain ways. And so I think holding a similar meeting to the one that Obama held in the summer of 2009 is interesting because maybe Biden was inspired by that. I don't know whether he was at that 2009 meeting. Do you? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Although, but, you know, given that Beschloss and, and uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin were there, maybe he maybe he found out on uh, March 2nd that, that this was not a new idea. Uh, right. But 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 the, the, the point being, so so hmm. so on one hand, he's following some of the precedents set by his predecessor and the administration he served in. On the other, he's going in different directions. So as you pointed out, the group that, that he met with on March 2nd was much more diverse than that group that met with President Obama in 2009. Hmm. Uh, so, so I think that that's interesting. And whether he learns lessons from it or not, well, of course, we need to find out what happened on March 2nd in greater detail. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I, re I truly hope, because he does seem to like to um, royal the British sometimes. So he was, uh, you know, I, he talked about, it, so uh, there was some blowback on social media, British social media, uh, really English social media uh, about his comments about Ireland uh, recently and so on and so forth. So maybe he's going to, he's going to invoke the Jay treaty when he meets um, Boris Johnson, because the you know, Jay treaty was a very controversial treaty at the time and engendered a lot of anti-British sentiment in the United States. So maybe he's going to drop some Jay treaty love on Boris Johnson now, when now, they meet for the first time. I'm sure uh, our listeners like, like president Biden is deeply knowledgeable about the Jay treaty, Frank, but could you remind everyone like what the cliff notes version of the Jay treaty is for those people who were, were not at the meeting on March 2nd? Yes. I mean, this is the very brief version, but so, so in the early 1790s, the United States is caught between France and Britain, who of course are engaged in the wars what will become known as the wars of the French revolution. They have to choose between France and Britain. Um, it's a complicated and tangled diplomatic story. Effectively, the Jay Treaty is negotiated to avoid an impending war between Britain and the U.S. And um, what the U.S. gets out of it is uh, it's a basically readmitted to the British Empire in economic terms, obviously not political terms, um, and peace for a time, so at least for a generation or 20, 18 years, is restored between Britain and the United States. So this, this war uh, scare passes in 1794 because... Uh, and the British make a number of concessions. They remove their troops from the what was then called the Old Northwest and, and so on. But it's a trade treaty between Britain and the United States. But it engenders, because of the immediate, it's in the immediate aftermath of the American Revolution, there's a huge kind of backlash against the Federalist administration of George Washington for negotiating this treaty because it's perceived, it's presented as the uh, United States selling out to Britain. Now, if, if you were to guess, what is the, the modern... Uh, analog that that caused somebody to bring that up in the meeting with biden i have no idea <laughs> okay I was, thinking, like, in the, I was trying to think like in this analogy like where's china which one is china? well, well, well no no no, no. But it, well it could be it could be that or it could be 
look, re-entering, uh, look, we don't know. So, so I really am pulling this out of the air, you know, but it could be, okay, this is a good example of, you know, if, the, if he re-enters the Iran nuclear deal, hmm. right? The Iran oh, nuclear yeah. deal, if he re-enters the Iran nuclear deal, that might be sound policy as the J Treaty was. It was good economic policy, but it might be bad politics because you can imagine it's being used against him by, by his adversaries. That's an example. I have no idea if that's the context in which it came up. I will be very interested to see, speak to Joanne and find out and to praise her for getting the J Treaty in the conversation. Exactly. Um, and in More fact, coverage of the J Treaty than it's gotten in 200 yes, years. So the, pre the press coverage of this meeting, and we've only had a few hints, is the, 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 the adjective used to describe that conversation was it was a granular discussion of the J Treaty. Now, I don't know whether they got down to, you know, oh, you know, clause four of the J Treaty. That was. <laughs> <laughs> that's some bad stuff you know uh but but anyway sure okay so you know looking back in the past 200 years th these two meetings uh, and well, we don't know how consequential either of them were um are there times in which presidents have consulted with historians that if that actually have been meaningful relationships either as groups of historians or individual historians well, if I think back, I mean, let's do as we usually do, David. Let's try to take this chronologically. So mm. for my own period, it's a little confusing. And to some extent, there will be parallels here with our previous discussion about presidential memoirs, because we're getting to the degree to which presidents think historically. But uh, uh, George Washington, of course, died in 1799. He never wrote a memoir. He was aware of his place in history. He was very, very close to John Marshall, who of course is remembered today as a Supreme Court justice, but John Marshall was a very, very strong federalist and a kind of political ally of George Washington's and wrote a five volume biography of George Washington that he published while he was on the Supreme Court. But I think we can see him as acting as an historian in that context. And it's kind of as close as we've got to an authorized biography of George Washington. It was in the way of these things, you know, the way people wrote history back at the turn of the 18th and 19th century. Um, one of these things, so although it's ostensibly a biography of George Washington, it's actually a 3000 page you know, history, uh, it's five volumes, they're massive volumes, and it's a history going back to the settlement of Virginia through the entire revolution with Washington's life interweaved. It's a massive undertaking. It's actually quite an impressive book in many regards. So we have a, an example of- While he's chief justice. Yes, yes. That's quite impressive, okay. No Twitter, no Netflix, David. He was very productive. That, that, that was that's the issue. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah, that's it, that's it. Um, at the approximately the same time, uh, Thomas Jefferson interacts with historians. He's very concerned. And again, we don't have to go into the details of this. His, his, his governorship of Virginia was, was controversial because the mm. British invaded the state. There are allegations of his cowardice and so on and so forth. He actively recruits historians to write a history of Virginia from the, its earliest settlement. It's kind of a counter to, to Marshall, frankly. Um, so he uh, hires an Irish playwright named John Daly Burke. Uh, gives him access to all of his records at Monticello to write this history of Virginia. Burke dies and he brings in a Frenchman named Louis Gerardin to, to finish it. It's a, it is a very interesting work of history. It's not as good as Marshall's, but it's also highly political. John Adams knew, this was during his retirement, but he, he, knew, he, he knew Mercy Otis Warren, one of the earliest historians of the American Revolution, really well. I mean, their families mm. went back. It was a 
it's, it's a Massachusetts thing. And Mercy Warren's history of the, of the revolution is actually, it's really, really good. And it's one of the first histories written of the revolution. Um, and, and Warren's history is very, very critical of Adams and Washington and the Federalists. And Adams engaged in a prolonged spat during his retirement uh, mm. and wrote a series of uh, newspaper edit, uh, newspaper essays in the Boston Patriot uh, to uh, newspaper to respond to Warren's history. So, so we have sort of early. It's not quite the same thing. I understand what you're talking about in terms mm. of historians coming to to kind of meet with the president and 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 converse with the president. But we have presidents interacting with historians, at least in the okay. early period. The first guy who comes along that I think of as both one of the earliest professional historians in America, mm. but who's also a politician, is in your period, though, David. Well, yes. I mean, uh, p- part of it, I think, is, is figuring out like who's a historian, what a historian is. Yeah. The job title didn't really exist until, you know, formally in, until like late in the 19th century. But, but uh, you know, it's a job that you could do along with other jobs. Um, so probably, the, you know, the most connected historian in terms of somebody who had access to the president, um, or at least in the top few, would be George Bancroft, um, uh, who... Uh, sort of did full-time being a historian and full-time being a politician uh, for, for much of his life. He wrote, he's most famous for this 10-volume history of the United States that he starts in 1834 and finishes sometime in the 1870s. He's a Jacksonian Democrat. You can really kind of see that in, 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 his, his, in, his, in his historical work. Uh, but he was also an active political figure. He was secretary of the Navy under President Polk. Uh, he helps to establish the Naval Academy. Um, he's later an ambassador to Prussia and then later to the German Empire. Uh, so he's sort of constantly involved in both writing American history and is really one of the sort of foundational figures. You know, the Bancroft Prize is, na- is named for him, but but is, is you know, uh, actively involved in creating American history at the same time, so much so that, you know, by the end of his career, he's writing about the beginning of his career in some ways. <laughs> um, um, but, but I think he, he's probably the, the, you know, the closest, the only person who is probably maybe potentially closer uh, jump uh, forward a century would be Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Um, who, uh, was also a, a Jacksonian of a kind because he wrote a biography, The Age of Jackson in 1945 that won the Pulitzer Prize, um, but gets involved in democratic politics, was an Adelaide Stevenson speechwriter, and then later worked, uh, was in the Kennedy administration as a speechwriter and as a consultant for for the entirety of the Kennedy presidency. I mean, he's, effect- yeah, he's effectively the kind of court historian of the Kennedy administration. And to some extent, we owe a lot of the Camelot myth to, to, to Schlesinger. But Schlesinger, I think, is important, David. I mean, we, because he was a bona fide working historian hmm. who, you know, who, who had a well-established reputation as a professional historian, whatever that means in the context of the mid-20th century, who made the transition to politics. So, so he wasn't a political operative who became a historian, or you know, he, well, he was. A, he, he, yeah, uh, to be sure, yeah, that's one hundred percent right. Um, oh, and the same is true for for, for Bancroft, uh, you know, who was a full fledged historian by the time he you know entered politics. I mean, Schlesinger, of course, is is 
Jr. is the son of Arthur Schlesinger yeah. Sr. So, you know, he has lots of connections at Harvard, uh, you know, well, including, sorry, David, including David, people like Kennedy. Tell us who Arthur Schlesinger Sr. was. Son. Oh, um, Arthur Schlesinger Sr. was a history professor at Harvard in, in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, he was one of the first sort of social historians. He wrote about social movements and, and the ways in which sort of the forces of history, both he and his son write about cycles of history as, as sort of a dynamic of, of uh, reform and then conservatism. Um, but, you know, in terms of, of speaking to, to Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s sort of connections with, with the Kennedy administration, you know, Kennedy has obviously has deep ties to, to Harvard and to Boston. So they're from a similar sort of social circle. So him fitting in the, the Kennedy White House while being a professional historian. And after the Kennedy White House, he writes this book, A Thousand Days, about his experience in the Kennedy White House. But then he goes back and does like other historical writing in the, the post-White House years. But, but, but crucially, he spends his post-White House years essentially as a socialite and public, public intellectual. He's not kind of, oh, I've got to teach the Americans history survey at 8 oh, a.m. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, he's not, he, he doesn't go back to becoming an, being an academic historian. Well, you know, he never had a Ph.D. Uh, and the reason why he didn't have a Ph.D., despite his dad being a professor of, uh, uh, at Harvard, was that he was a, a fellow of Harvard. And it was supposedly it was considered uh, improper for, for the Harvard fellows to actually get a PhD. That you should be a gentleman of leisure, some other kind of nonsense. Um, so, you know, uh, I don't know whether he was super wealthy, but he was at least super connected and sort of lived that, that, that life, which sounds like a good life. Uh, so, so good for him. Um, which other historians strike you as, as being, or which other presidents seem particularly interested in surrounding themselves by, with historians? Well, there are two come to mind um, from, from a slightly earlier period, which are um, Theodore Roosevelt, who of course was a historian and a published historian himself. I mean, Theodore hmm. Roosevelt, um, you President know, did a, AJ. Yes, did a lot of stuff, but he actually wrote a series of works on, on um, uh, particularly the history of, of uh, what we now, well, call uh, of the settlement. I mean, he would have called it frontier history after his mm. friend Frederick Jackson Turner. But, uh, uh, so he wrote about the, the settling of, of, of the United States and the expansion of the United States in the West, but and a substantial body of work. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt is a, is a bona fide historian, as well as writing autobiographies and memoirs and things like that. And so Theodore Roosevelt is certainly very historically minded, as you say, president of the AHA. Uh, the great, great U.S. historian who's an Adams, in fact, um, Henry Adams, the, the great grandson of John Adams, uh, lived across the street from the, or across the square from the White House during um, Roosevelt's presidency. And according to it, I'm quoting an, an article from Time Magazine from 1998, so I don't know how accurate this is. It says, peevish Henry Adams, who lived across the square from the White House and was always dreading that the president might stomp over for, for breakfast. So there was, <laughs> certainly, <laughs> there was certainly a connection between Henry Adams, who um, was... You know, his, his history of the United States during the administrations of Jefferson and Madison 
still bears reading. I mean, it's a really fantastic work of history. Our colleague uh, Owen Dudley Edwards here in Edinburgh has called it the greatest history ever written by an American. I don't know whether I'd go that far, but yeah. it, it's a Owen is given to hyperbole sometimes. Um, but 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 Henry Adams and and. Teddy Roosevelt would have had a relationship, and Teddy Roosevelt knew lots of historians. He also tended to believe he knew more than everybody he was he could possibly speak to. So I don't know whether he was taking advice in the same way that well, President you know, Biden was. He met uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan in 1888, well before either of them were were famous. They, they met when when um, Mahan was at the the Naval Academy. I guess that's the second. I was up the Naval Academy here. Um, but, you know, Mahan is, is effectively retired from the Navy and is consulted by both McKinley and then later by, by Roosevelt. Um, Mahan is also president of the AHA. Lots of people are president of the AHA. Um, you know, the other historian president. Oh, go ahead, Frank. Yeah, sorry, I was going to say the other one that came to mind, I, I was going to mention mm -hmm. too, and then hand over to you, yeah. is um, Woodrow Wilson, who was formerly usually identified as a political scientist, but he's certainly uh, a historically minded political scientist. And I know he surrounded himself with historians. Oh, David, he, he yeah, so. yeah, I mean, uh, Wilson, um, you know, wrote history. He wrote about the history of Reconstruction. Uh, so, you know, and, and he was an academic for most of his life, you know, both, uh, you know, teaching at, at Bryn Mawr, teaching at Princeton. Um, Serving as president, president of Princeton. Princeton. So, you know, he, he, he deals a lot with, with, with that. He had you know, a, a life as an academic. Um, and, you know, he surrounds himself with, uh, with historians. Uh, he actually has a whole uh, team of historians that join him. Um, on his uh, trip to Paris for the Paris Peace Treaty at the end of the First World War to act as historical consultants. Um, and this included uh, Charles uh, Homer ha uh, Haskins, who was the foremost medievalist in the country. I'm not sure why you'd bring a medievalist to, to a peace treaty, but he did. Uh, uh, Samuel L. Morrison, who was at that point a very junior historian, but he comes along, but he actually has this whole... Uh, group of historians that join him they're actually on the same boat going over to Paris um, how much he consulted with them during the peace treaty negotiations itself is a matter of some debate it seems like he asked them questions but he asked them questions to verify his own opinions of things much more so than to get their opinions of things um, I mean I think the Medievalist is more relevant than you think at first sight, because one of the themes that emerges from the Versailles talks, and a particular theme that's important to Wilson, is establishing historic borders for countries that often align with um, uh, either ethnic or, or, or um, religious groups or, or uh, language areas and so sure. on. And, so, so, and, and these these imagined, you know, idealized uh, borders often have medieval roots. I, I mean, I, 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 no, I think okay. that might okay. be no, more I relevant think, than yeah. you think. No, I think Haskin, for instance, was 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 very influential in, in Alsace and trying to figure out where oh. that fit yeah. So, but he, but he brought historians with him on the supposition that having that expertise would be valuable. Right. He got, right. He, Wilson got teased some for this because he walks off the boat with all these nerdy academics with their books and, and, and all the European politicians are like, why did you bring those guys? We don't, we don't need those guys. Um, let us go in the room and, and make decisions. Um, and, and obviously the 
Versace didn't necessarily turn out exactly as Wilson had 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 intended. Uh, one of the the more interesting uh, sort of historians who's around both Wilson and later FDR is William Dodd. Are you familiar with William Dodd? Only vaguely. I mean, he's he's a historian of your part of the world, right, David? Well, like, I he's mean, a historian in your period. The, he's a historian of the American South. Uh, taught at the University of Chicago for many years, but his PhD, which was from Leipzig, uh, which maybe explain why you haven't read it because it's in German, is on the presidency of 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 Thomas Jefferson. Right. I have so to you confess. Can, I would, uh, you got brushed up I'll on add, German, Frank. It's, I'll add it's it to my list. <laughs> things to read, right. Um, but he was a, a Southerner. He's from North Carolina. Uh, he was actually very critical of the lost cause and of sort of the romanticism of the Old South. Uh, but he was also a very close associate of Woodrow Wilson. Um, he wrote speeches for him when Wilson was running for president. Uh, ends up living not far from, doesn't live across the street like, like like Adams, but he's lives nearby Washington, visits Wilson frequently in the White House. He later wrote a biography of Wilson and edited some of Wilson's early papers. He's president of the AHA, uh, which is all very interesting. But the sort of the most interesting aspect of his life potentially uh, is that he gets appointed by by FDR to be an ambassador. Um, because uh, what Dodd really wants to do is have a break from teaching and from other things to go write a multi-volume history of the American South. And, and he was told, oh, the ambassador doesn't have to do very much. You can go and it'll be fine, right? You just go, you write, go to parties, whatever. Uh, and, and Dodd is sent to Germany in 1933. Well, not much going on there. Not, not much. Go- <laughs> yeah, yeah. He has, he has a, a very problematic ambassadorship to Germany because the State Department he's very angry about the Nazis. Um, so he turns out well historically, uh, but the State Department didn't want him to be as hostile to the Nazis as he was. Uh, and so he ends up uh, quitting that post in 1937. Um, but, you know, he's somebody who is clearly uh, uh, very involved in, in two different administrations. Um you know, thinking about historian about presidents more recently, though, there there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of of, of historians making traffic to the White House until the, these two meetings with um, Obama and and Biden. Well, Sean Wilentz, you know, mm. kind of uh, the Princeton historian um, of the United States, had a kind of prominence during the Clinton years, mm. most notably because he testified at the Clinton impeachment hearing in 1998 and, you know, basically asserting that there was no real foundation to that, to that impeachment. He popped up again during the Trump, uh, the first Trump impeachment, uh, supporting that uh, quite prominently, but that was less as a, uh, I guess, Wilentz's activities have been less as a kind of advisor or consigliere uh, to, 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 to relevant presidents or, and more as a kind of public, inter, a public intellectual intervening in a major um, political dispute that affects his uh, presidents, I suppose. So I don't know. In fact, I, I simply do not know whether Sean Wilentz ever met Bill Clinton. I think they might have met. I think uh, um, some people have said that Sean Wilentz some people have identified Shaw Wilentz as the kind of successor to Arthur Schlesinger Jr. as the kind of semi-official historian of the mm. Democratic Party, but but I don't know about a kind of formal connection or not. Do you? Well, I, I, that I don't know. One historian, though, that Bill Clinton did meet with several times uh, was John Hope Franklin. 
who he appoints to be his head of his One America Initiative, which is also called the, the President's Initiative on Race, uh, where Franklin was the co-chair with William Winter, who was the former Democratic governor of, of Mississippi. Um, you know, how successful this initiative was is, is unclear. It didn't seem like it had a huge amount of direction. They issue a report, which sat on a shelf as far as I understand. Um, but, you know, I think the fact that, that Clinton is pointing to a historian to, to head this at least uh, very prominent commission uh, in 1997, uh, I think speaks to some of the ways in which the Clinton administration sort of wanted to position itself historically. Yeah, that, I think that's interesting. Equally interesting, I suppose, and from another perspective, is mm. the, you know, at the very end, I think we probably talked about this uh, a few months ago, but at the very end of the Trump administration, the Trump administration issued this 1776 report and attempted to kind of uh, lay out its interpretation of American history and to look forward to the 2026 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and, and what was interesting about, well, there are a lot of interesting things about that report, mm. <laughs> but, but there were no historians involved in the creation of that report, if memory serves. Um, I, uh, I, don't think, I don't think that there were any uh, historians involved in that. Uh, Alan Guelzo, didn't Alan Guelzo go to the White House under President Trump? Is that, from, is that correct? Am yeah, I, he, went, he went to the meeting. There was the meeting announcing right. this commission, but he wasn't actually on the, he didn't write the report. Um, and one can imagine, I mean, I don't know who they, if there were historians, they approached who said, no, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, but the, the, the people who were, who were the authors of that particular commission were, or not, uh, at least people we'd recognize as historians. Yeah. I'm aware of at least one prominent historian who was invited to serve on that commission who politely declined. Probably a good choice. Yeah. Um, is there is there a place for more regular engagement by historians or by the president with historians or by historians with the president? I mean, the president actually after all has a commission of economic advisors. Is there a place for a, a commission of historical advisors? Absolutely. I mean, I think I would recommend, and I, I and I'm saying this with all modesty, that uh, President Biden should listen to our podcast every week. I think well, that would really sure. help him. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether it needs to be institutionalized, like the Council on Economic Advisors, although I wouldn't object to that. Although once, you, if it were institutionalized, you could imagine people saying, "Well, you can't rely on them. Of course, they're partisan hacks, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Um, I think the impulse to consult historians is not a bad one. Hmm. Um, I think that, as I said, the reports I've heard um, about this meeting are that, you know, President Biden, you know, listened and asked serious questions. And this, this, was, this, was, a, this was a meeting. It was a proper meeting and an exchange of ideas. It wasn't just a photo op. I don't hmm. think that's very harmful. I think if we reflect back to the quote you cited earlier from President Obama, if we take him at his word, and we have no reason not to. I'm sure his intent in July, June and July of, of 20. 2009 was to do this regularly. I imagine the press of daily business when you're president of the United States is such that, you know, there are lots of meetings you'd like to have that you don't get around to having. And, and that may well have been the case there. So, while I think it's a good thing. Uh, 
how practical it will be, I, I, I simply don't know. I mean, maybe you do need a Schlesinger. Maybe you need a member of your cabinet mm. who is either has a background as a historian or is sort of historically minded, if, if you were. Um, that wouldn't be the worst thing. Uh, I think the fact that Biden was a history major, I, you know, I joked about that at the beginning, but frankly, is a good thing. I mean, history and the study of the past teaches us certain ways of thinking mm-hmm. and ways to analyze evidence and to critically engage with, with material that are skills you and I believe in, to be sure. <laughs> and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and there would be no loss in, in doing that. But, it, you know, the president has a lot to do. What but do you think? Well, I mean, I. I I think having you know a, a commission like the Commission on Economic Advisors or, or you know the or the or various kinds of advisory boards the presidents have for foreign policy issues for science issues uh, you got a council on physical fitness you know if if they if they can afford to have a council on physical fitness you can have a council of historical advisors I think. Yeah, but look, the President's Council on Physical Fitness isn't that important, right? Except it means you have to climb a rope when you're in school. Uh, <laughs> maybe you probably don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, and we did. I, I like climbing the rope. That was good fun. <laughs> but, I enjoyed that. But, 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 but um, I mean, if you're talking about real impact, I mean, l- let me suggest another way to approach this. If you have these other areas, you know, the president has to deal with foreign policy, mm. has to deal with the environment, the economy, has to deal with the environment. It might be better to have historians involved in all of those various councils mm. rather than have a separate council of historians like the president's council on physical fitness that you meet with and have lunch with once a year and then send them on their way. Um, you know, it might be better to have historians informing those other deliberations, frankly. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, if you just look at like who's on the Council of Economic Advisors, there are lots of people with PhDs in economics who are on that committee. Right. You know, and so one can imagine, you know, there's certain sort of disciplinary traits that are then embedded within that, the, the, that body and the ways in which it, it understands how knowledge works. Um, and I think we as a discipline have that as well. And, and um, I think there, there, there's a, there's a, It'd be fun to sort of think about who who would want as as on this uh, you know team of, of of historical advisors and what kind of historical advice, whether they need a medievalist or not, uh, you know, would be good for a president to have. Um, uh, I, I don't. It, but again, it, why not? Why not have an economic historian on the Council of Economic Advisors? Why not have historians of foreign policy on the on? Oh the- sure, I mean that that would work too. I think we could we could split this in a variety of different ways. But uh, but I think having having more historians, you know that that you know I think that the work of historians is relevant to the work the president is doing, whether it's work about voting rights, whether it's vote working on on you know dealing with the pandemic and the economic crisis. I think is is vitally could be very valuable and and, and formalizing those relationships. Uh, might might make the sort of ad hoc ways in which people presidents occasionally have dinner with historians, um, you know, m- make that process more more formal would be be useful. Um, as as our colleague Tom Devine likes to say, mm. history is the mother of all disciplines. And so he, he any president would benefit from speaking to historians at any time. What one one would one would hope, um, yeah. But it doesn't seem to be. And just looking back on it, you know, it does, for some people it seems to be a more of a priority than others. And for those that seems to be a priority, seems to be presidents who 
themselves were, uh, you know, historically inclined, you know. Kennedy himself was also a history major. So you know, the fact that he has a historian there, he was a history major at Harvard and he has the son of a Harvard historian who's also a Harvard historian. You know, okay, that makes a lot of sense. You know, um, Biden, as you said, was a history major. Um, but so was George W. Bush and, and, and he didn't hang out with historians as far as I know, but maybe he didn't get good grades. Um, well, we're back to, I mean, I, I do think the diversity of voices that were represented in the in the in that meeting on March second, and and his perspectives uh, again, both in terms of their personal biographies, but also in terms of their um, the work they do and the work and, and and the things they they study uh, mm. was important. I mean, it's, you're right. Uh, you know, Theodore Roosevelt talking to Henry, going across to talk to Henry Adams was probably very enjoyable for both of them. Well, it's Henry Adams doesn't seem to have enjoyed anything, but um, you know, but but you know, they're basically uh, too much of a muchness. Mm. Similarly, as you've just described it, JFK and, and Arthur Schlesinger Jr. are very very similar in terms of their background, so they're not necessarily bringing something new perspectives to the table. I think if you Presidents would benefit, all leaders benefit when they speak to people who, who can speak to perspectives that they don't have. Mm. Good. Well said. Well, so President Biden, if you're listening to the podcast, Frank and I are both available to consult, um, uh, you know, uh, at your uh, discretion. One thing I do think is interesting, one final comment I'd make about that meeting on March 2nd, which is interesting, is they held it in person. Mm. <laughs> you know, when I first saw the headline about it, I assumed it was yet another Zoom meeting. Like the one we're having right now, right now yeah. uh, but but you know I think there is a different dynamic in person. I, again, it, it speaks to the importance. I think that President Biden kind of uh, invested in that meeting and oh, and sure. seriousness seriousness with which they with which he took it. So so I I, I think it's a. I don't, as I said, and this will be my last word. I guess mm. it wasn't just a photo op, and I think that speaks no, well. Think... The Biden administration, well, well, especially since, as far as we know, we don't have any photos of it. Um, you know, uh, all right. Uh, time for last drops, Frank. What'd you got? Well, I want to recommend a podcast, David, uh, that's hosted by Michael Conley. Michael Conley, as many listeners will know, is the author. Uh, he's a detective novelist primarily. He writes the, the Harry Bosch novel as well as the, uh, the Lincoln Lawyer novels uh, series. Um, Michael Conley is a favorite of mine. I think I probably mentioned him in the past. Um, he does a true crime podcast called Murder Book. Uh, Murder the Murder Book. Yeah. Well, the murder book, if you follow police procedurals, is what whenever there's a murder case, the detectives involved, they start the book, which is when they're gathering all the evidence and the timeline and everything else. So there's always a book. It's a big binder that hmm. keeps track of everything in the case. So, so that's where the name derives from. And he looks, uh, I listened to the first series of this recently. It's very, very good. It's only a couple of years old. Um, and one of the things he looks at, or the, the, the first series concerned a cold case from the late 1980s that was only recently resolved. And one of the aspects of it that's quite interesting, again, from if we're thinking about this as historians, is he talks about the emergence of cold cases. So looking at old unresolved cases, this really began in the 1990s with advances in DNA hmm. technology and, and understanding of DNA. But he, he speaks to detectives involved and interviews them about uh, how cold case units were established in oh, the, the cold case unit in the Los Angeles Police Department was established. It's very, very interesting as a kind of um, 
exercise in, in, in contemporary history. And uh, Conley was a journalist before he became a writer of detective fiction. Mm. So he's, 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 he knows how to ask the right questions. It's, it's very, very good podcast. So I, I can recommend it to you. And, and uh, the, the, the case in the case in particular uh, that season one concerns is from the late 1980s. So it's a snapshot of life in the, in the 1980s in Los Angeles, which is also very interesting as a historic document. I won't give anything away, no spoilers, but I can recommend Murder Book by Michael Conley. What about right. you, David? Uh, well, I want to recommend the the Liner Notes podcast with Catherine Jewell. Uh, she's a historian at Fitchburg State uh, in, in your uh, home state of Massachusetts. I think she actually went to BU, which I, I've heard nice. is a good place for, for people to, to get PhDs in history. Um, but this is a podcast uh, liner notes that is about the the craft of historical writing. Uh, so she has a, a guest historian on. There's only a, a handful of episodes up, up thus far, but she's had uh, Megan Kate Nelson and Hillary Green and, and Angela Diaz and a few other people. Um, but you know, if you're interested in, in how historians actually do the work that they do in terms of how, how do they do research, how do they write. Uh, this is an interesting conversation about that, that historical process that I think for many people is invisible. And I learned a lot that, that, that some historians care a lot about the pens they use, which I've never cared about. Frank, do you care about the pens that you use when you write? I like a nice pen. But oh, I don't, like I, nice I, but, but I'm not sure I would dedicate a podcast to it. <laughs> well, it's just because because she mentioned like uh, that she asked people what pens they use, and people have very deep thoughts about particular models of pens and why they, and which is never an, an issue that I've ever really thought about. So maybe I, I mean, how much? It. How much? Uh, to what degree do you use pens when you're writing? Uh, I, as, opposed, I as opposed to yeah, a keyboard. I, I use a keyboard for the first draft of everything, but then I print it out because I'm a bad environmentalist uh and and then edit that paper printout copy with a pen and i might i write in my books right. but um yeah i've never particularly noticed or cared which pen i'm using but but now that i'm listening to this podcast i'm going to give greater thought to it and maybe follow up some of their recommendations we should do a podcast on writing in books and marginalia because that is a very very controversial issue right i didn't realize that was a controversial issue but uh yes i do write in my books Right. Uh, right. Uh, and, and listeners, if you have thoughts about pens or writing in your books or other things, please let us know. But until next week, Frank, uh, cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh. And Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 